You know, every time you get asked to teach somewhere, you kind of battle in your own mind and you say, well, what am I going to teach on, you know? So I called a good friend of mine today and uh, said, what should I teach on tonight? You know, I've got all these different ideas and all these different types of things. And he goes, well, teach on what you're passionate about. And so I ask you, what am I passionate about? (laughs) Thank you very much. My name is Paul Skazafava. You'll be tested on that later. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I've done many apologetics classes here. I've talked about discernment and things like that. I've been in the Sermon on the Mount for about 36 weeks on Sunday mornings at Calvary Santa Fe, in which everyone says Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And uh, what's on my heart is really the church's ability to discern. And like some of you in the School of Ministry, where are you guys? Where's the School of Ministry? All right, there you go, all right. A lot of you have already heard this, but I think the church in general needs to hear the cry for discernment. For we live in a time, brothers and sisters, when the church doesn't seem to be putting on their thinking caps. They seem to be looking for all the truth in all of the wrong places. And so I want to go through a section of Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23 with you this evening. I've got a lot of notes, and I've told I've got about three and a half hours to preach, so we're going to have to hurry. What? Amen. School of Ministry students are going, thank you, three and a half hours. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for discernment in the church. We do pray, O Lord, that we would heed your warning as we look at the Sermon on the Mount this evening. And Lord, that those of us who are not discerning, those of us who seem to be finding truth in all the wrong places, Lord, that you would stop them in their tracks and that you point them in the direction of your holy word. Be with us this evening as we contemplate your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." These are from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. And so some ask the question today, why do we always have to hear about defending the faith? Why do we always have to hear about watching out for wolves in sheep's clothing? Why? Because Jesus told us to watch out. Let me ask a question this evening. Can you be deceived? How would you answer that? Oh, yes, you can. But I go to Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque. We go through the Bible in an expository fashion. We go through the whole entire book in context. 
Yeah, but there's a lot more to just coming to church on Wednesdays, on Saturdays, and Sundays. There's listening to people on Christian television, if that's what you want to call it. There's tons of radio shows and all kinds of different media that's, that's kind of getting crammed into our ears. And we need to stop every once in a while and ask ourselves, do I know my Bible? Do I know what I believe and do I know why I believe it? And then asking the question, how important is that? Well, as we're going to see, it's very important. You see, if a shepherd only feeds the flock and doesn't warn them, all he's doing is fattening them up for the kill. That's all he's doing. And yet, at the same time, if he only warns the flock all the time and never feeds them, they'll die of starvation. And it's the pastor's responsibility to shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul tells us that in the book of Acts. Today, it seems like the church is more interested in the fads and more interested in the me, myself, and I versions of Christianity than being dedicated solely and wholly to the Word of God. People always ask the question, what can your church do for me? No, it should be the other way around. How can you maintain the health of the church? This is a big church. I worked here for 15 years and ministered to a lot of you. And there's a lot of new faces as well. But everybody has to have everybody else's back. Because you see what happens is if we have this Christianity that basically says, I'm coming to Calvary because it provides X, Y, and Z, you've got it all wrong. You should be coming to Calvary because God has called you to be here and then ask yourself, how can I be involved in what's going on? Now, I've been in Santa Fe for over two and a half years now. And as you go through a transition, you need your brothers and sisters to step up to the plate. They need to serve. They need to do things that, that minimize the transition rather than maximizing the transition. And so we look at the Word of God this evening and we see that Jesus wants to warn us. Vance Habner says, More harm has been done to the church by termites on the inside than by woodpeckers on the outside. It's true. Jesus is going to give us a description of these people and we'll be able to discern more as the night goes on. But first of all, we need to understand something. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 7. The first thing that people mutter is, wait a second, the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. And yes, the Bible does say that we should not judge hypocritically. Remember, he's talking to those who would hypocritically judge him, those who would have a pole coming out of their head and try to get the speck out of their brother's eye. That's hypocritical judgment. Or censorious judgment where people are just looking for all the dirt, the sin sniffer of the 21st century. You know, people come into church and, you're all right, go ahead. I hope I'm not giving you ushers an idea, but. We don't want to become sin sniffers or heresy hunters, but again, why would Jesus warn his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount? Because he loves us, right? Because he doesn't want us to go down that path that might lead us astray. And so again, look at verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Jesus is talking about the narrow gate that we must enter. It's a small opening to enter into this gate. You can't bring your sin with you. 
You can't bring your baggage with you. You can't bring anybody else with you. You've got to enter that narrow gate on your own and by yourself. But there are some who are standing at the narrow gate trying to convince people that the narrow gate is really not the way at all. They say the way is broad. All paths lead to God. It's all about just getting along. If we can just get along, then everything will be all right. Why would you need to go through that narrow gate? I mean, if you're claustrophobic, it really wouldn't work out for you. Come this way. And so today, churches are afraid to speak of hell, of sin. They're afraid to to challenge their congregations not to live in sin, not to live a life of sin. Those words are out of the vocabulary because, you know, you really can't fill the seats unless you entertain people. And that's what I like about this church. This church isn't out to entertain anybody. But this church is out to glorify our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it's all about. John Warwick Montgomery wrote a book called Damned Through the Church. Listen to his assessment of church history. He said, under sacramentalism, the church replaced God. So now it's what you do that gets you closer to God. And if you do it for the church, it makes you even closer to God. Under rationalism, he said, reason was God. Under orthodoxism, God was sterile, impersonal orthodoxy. Under politicism, God was the state. Under the ecumenical movement, God was uncritical fellowship and cooperation among nominal Christians. Everyone's trying to get along, but we must understand there are doctrines that divide. You cannot avoid those things. There are doctrines that divide. Under experimentalism, God became personal experience. And you see that big time in the church today. It's how the service makes you feel rather than whether or not the service was something that was God-honoring. The message was something that was biblical, something that we can apply to our lives. None of us like to sit in a seat and think that the pastor followed them around all week, right? I've had people tell me that. Did you? Did you follow me around all week? Uh, no. What's your name? Well, you were, you were talking about me. You're talking about the things. That, well, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to achieve. Godliness and holiness in the bride of Christ. He says under subjectivism, which still reigns much in Christendom today, self has become God. Oh, yes, it's crept into the church. It's, again, it's, it's the McDonald's mentality in the church. I want to have it my way. Or is that Burger King? I don't know. Under mysticism, which seeks to determine truth about God by intuition and feeling. And on pragmatism, which attempts to determine what is true by what produces desired effects. We no longer care, it seems, in the church whether it's true or not. It's whether it works or not. That's really the issue. I went to this Indian guru who told me to worship my toes. And I did it and I was healed. Praise God! Well, which God are you talking about? The God of your toes? I don't know. In verse 15, again, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets. Proskeo in the Greek. And it means to hold the mind towards, to pay attention to, or to be cautious about. Beware of false prophets. Why in this day and age will we need to even talk about these passages? Why? Well, because there are people in the church that claim that there are no absolutes. There's absolutely no absolutes, they say. And you understand how that kind of implodes on itself. But there is objective truth, amen? 
It's God's holy word. You want to know what God thinks about what you're doing in your life? Open up the word. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Open up the word. You want to know how to get through marital problems? Open up the word. It's all there. And yet I find that today there are more books sold on those topics than the Bible itself. Now, there's nothing wrong with books. But if we have the word of God and we spend our times in the word of God, then we will be mighty soldiers in the hand of God. The Bible is the standard by which we judge all things. That is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's not the Bible and. It's not, well, you know, I read the Bible and I just couldn't find it. The Bible is a sole rule of faith and everybody must bow and bend their knee to the Word of God, Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Word, you are a sheep that can be mauled by a wolf in sheep's clothing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul says in verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom you have not preached, and if you have received a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Did you hear what Paul said? There's a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. They're out there, and they're vying for your attention, brothers and sisters. They want to get to know you, and they want you to get to know them. In verse 13 of that same chapter, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan can change himself into an angel of light, yes. How do you know the difference? How do you know? You need to have a discerning eye, and you need to know the scriptures. Second John verse 7 says, Many deceivers have gone into that world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. That is a deceiver and an antichrist. And then Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 24, where he says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I like that. I don't like the deceiving part. I like, if possible, even the elect. That means that those of us who are in Christ don't have to be deceived, don't need to be deceived, and cannot be deceived if we just put on the whole armor of God. So he says, beware of false prophets. I think in the context here, in our day and age, we're talking about people behind the pulpit. People who are on television. People who are on the radio. Let me ask you a question. How much time do you spend testing out Pastor Pete? Do you go home after a message and say, that was a good message. I'm going to go through these passages and test to make sure that what he said is true. Oh, but Pete asked you to come and teach, Paul. Well, yeah, he did. And that's what I'm doing. 
But do you test those things? Do you check them out to make sure that you're not being misled by the, by the pseudo-prophetes or the prophetes, the pseudo-prophets? Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, verse 9. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. I think that that's where the church is today. I think the church doesn't want to hear the truth because it doesn't make them feel good. But it's the truth that sets us free, Jesus said. Amen? It's the truth that will set us free. Listen to what Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy 13.1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. Some people ask the question, why does God let these people continue to go on? They got huge ministries, huge, because God is testing his people. God is testing his people. He wants people who are going to follow him in spirit and in truth. So let me give you some characteristics of some false prophets of the day. I promise that I wouldn't name too many names, but uh, I get myself in trouble all the time I do that. And hopefully here at Calvary, um, I won't, but uh, I'll be ready for you after the service just in case you've got the shotgun ready to go. First of all, there's no narrow path in their gospel. It's not narrow. Come to Jesus and all will be well. Now, brothers and sisters, I've been walking with the Lord for over 20 years. From the time I got saved to now, it hasn't been come to Jesus and all will be well. Amen? It's come to Jesus and your family will disown you. Come to Jesus and people will think you're a freak. Come to Jesus and all your drug dealer friends won't give you any free drugs anymore. Amen for that. But it hurts to be a Christian, doesn't it? It's hard to be a Christian. And so they try to minimize the amount of sin that we commit. Say, oh, you know, we're just kind of a little misguided. Just come to Jesus and everything will be okay. Well, yes, everything will be okay. But we've got to go through this life, which is a promise from the Lord, that we'll go through trial and tribulation. Amen? I don't like trial and tribulation just like you don't, but when it's in my life, it makes me grow. And if you don't have trial and tribulation in your life, you might want to ask the Lord to bring a little on you. In fact, I'll pray this evening that you get some. We want to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to share the wealth with you. The second identification is their message has no offense to those who claim to be Christian and yet live in sin. It's okay. Just come. Just come just as you are. But yes, come just as you are. But God wants to change you. God wants to grow you up in Christ. He doesn't want you to stay in sin. And again, it seems to be a minimal thing for these false prophets, these false teachers of the day. Just fill the, just fill the church. Just get as many people as you can get in there. It doesn't matter what they're doing. That's not right. 
They don't even offend non-Christians. Now, I'm not out to offend you if you're a non-Christian this evening, or even if you're a Christian. But if you are living in sin, brother or sister, or non-Christian, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin, and you need to walk in the direction of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. They rarely preach on holiness, righteousness, and especially judgment and the wrath of God. That's the part of the Bible that they avoid. That's why I like expository teaching. It makes us go through those texts, although some of us are a little hesitant to do it. And also, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I want you to write this down. It's what they don't say that you need to watch out for. It's what they don't say that you need to watch out for. Oh, a wolf in sheep's clothing is going to go, bah. That was horrible, but I tried. <laughs> they're going to make you think that they're the real deal. They're not going to come out and go, I want to eat you. <laughs> not going to do that. They only do that after they got you away from the flock of God, as the wolves would take the sheep and try to get the sheep away from the flock so that they could isolate them and maul them. I was watching a television program the other day, Larry King Live, and there was a televangelist type of person on there. And uh, Listen to the dialogue. Larry King says, you don't call them sinners. He says, I don't. Larry King says, is that a word you don't use? This man says, I don't use it. Never thought about it, but I probably don't. But most people already know that they're doing wrong. When I get them to church, I want to tell them that you can change. There can be a difference in your life, so don't go down. I, so I don't go down the road of condemning. Now let's think about that for a minute. What's not being said? That we're sinners that need a savior. You don't call them sinners. God does. God calls us sinners. Says that we're miserable, wretched people who deserve hell, and yet it's His grace and His mercy by sending His Son Jesus Christ to come and suffer and die for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that sinners can be saved. If you don't tell them they're sinners, how do they ever get saved? Interesting. It's not about what they say. It's about what they don't say. Hell is out of the question. And then there are those today that have falsely prophesied many, many times. And everybody still follows them. That's the thing that irks me the most. And then those of you who know me know that uh, I watch the Woodhay and Stubble Network uh, every evening. That's the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And uh, my wife can't watch that stuff, but I get glued to it because it's just such good stuff. <laughs> I want you to listen to this prophecy. This was given December 31st, 1989. The Spirit tells me Fidel Castro will die in the 90s. Oh my. Some will try to kill him and they will not succeed. But there will come a change in his physical health and he will not stay in power. And Cuba will be visited of God. Did that happen in the 90s? Okay, here's another one. The Lord also tells me to tell you. In the mid-90s, about 94, 95, no later than that, God will destroy the homosexual community of America and where you have major applause. But he will not destroy it with what some minds have thought it to be. But it will be destroyed with fire. 
and many will turn and be saved, and many will rebel and be destroyed. Did that happen around 94, 95? I don't know where he was, but... Now, I ask you, for somebody to give a prophecy like that on December 31st, 1989, about the 90s, it didn't happen, right? What is this guy? He's a false prophet. His name is Benny Hinn. Why do, why do people follow him? See, that's now I'm going to start getting riled up here. <laughs> He's a false prophet. And millions follow him. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The prophets would wear a cloak of animal hair to kind of separate them from, from the normal people, if you will. They were distinguishable. In Zephaniah 3.3 3 it says, Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are even evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Right? Who's got your back? Who's got your back? In the book of Acts, let's turn there. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now listen to what he says. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In the New Testament books alone, we have a warning in every book. People say to me, well, you know, every time I come to your church, you're teaching on apologetics or defending the faith. Well, that's because the texts that I'm usually in include that. Where can you go in the Bible except for like Philemon where you don't find a warning against some type of heresy? In every book you find it, even in the Old Testament. And so we are to beware of these ravenous wolves because not only are we to beware of them, but they're dangerous. What Christians do is they get so close to the lamb thinking, hey, I wonder if this is... And, you know, then they come and find me. And we counsel. I've counseled some of you out of some of these things. Ravening wolves. Harpax in the Greek. Merciless and ferocious. It also means this. Swindler. Swindler. Next time you watch a begathon on TV, remember these words. The Didache, which was written way back when, the, the, the writing, the document of the Twelve, gives several means for distinguishing a true prophet. One of them is a true prophet would not remain as a house guest more than two days because he would need to be up and about his work. So if you came into a town 
you were an itinerant preacher and you came in, you, you stayed more than two days, you were to be rejected. It wasn't about that. Look at verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Are you fruit inspectors? See, although we're not supposed to judge unrighteously or hypocritically or censoriously, we are to know them by their fruits. If you plant an apple tree in your backyard, it takes a while for that. If you, if you put it in a seed form, how long before you have some fruit? So it takes a while. Some people think because the ministry is viable, because a lot of people come, that they think that that means fruit. But we're going to talk about what that really means. It's not someone who's talking a bunch of Christianese. Glory to God. Hallelujah, brother. I'll send you this vial of oil that I've prayed for and just send me $1,000 and you'll be healed. Amen. Luke 6.45, Jesus said, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The fruit will come. You'll see it. But you've got to be watching. Fruits here is a metaphor for actions. It's for actions. John the Baptist told the Pharisees, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And you guys know the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And so we've got to ask ourselves a question when we're putting on our fruit inspector cap. First of all, we must ask ourselves this question. Is Christ's character seen in the person's life? That's the fruit of the person's life. It's not how many people got saved during their ministry. It's looking at their character. Being a Christian, as you know, brothers and sisters, means a changed life, right? When you gave your life to Christ, all of a sudden, everything changed. You didn't have a desire to do some of the things that you used to do. You had a desire for the Bible. I remember the first time I, when I got saved, I tried to read my grandmother's Bible. You know those 40-pound Bibles that are like 300 years old and yet they're brand new? Some of you know what I'm talking about. All you do is press flowers in it or the first couple of pages of the family genealogy and that's about it. What are you doing? Uh, reading the Bible? You're not supposed to read that. Put it away. I was reading the wrong books anyway. But fruit bearing begins on the inside of the heart. That's where it begins. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in the heart will eventually come out. It'll come and it'll bear fruit, whether it's good fruit or bear fruit, bad fruit. Lloyd-Jones says, that which a man is ultimately in the depths is always going to manifest itself. And it does so in belief and life. The two things are indissolubly linked together. As a man thinks, so eventually he is. And as man thinks, so he does. In other words, we inevitably proclaim what we are and what we believe. It does not matter how careful we are. It's bound to come out. It's true. It's true. You'll find it in teaching. You'll find it in the lifestyles and so on. Jesus confronting the Pharisees said in Matthew 12, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. 
And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So that's the first criteria. Is Christ's character seen in the person's life? The second is this. Does his or her teaching conform to the word of God? Does it conform to the word of God? Now turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Some of you are not turning. I'm trying to make it practical for you so you can do this at home. John 14.10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. What's going on here? Well, we know that Jesus is speaking, right? Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about himself and the Father, right? Now, we are Trinitarians. If I was to bring a microphone down off the stage and put it in, in your mug and say, what's the definition of the Trinity? Could you give it to me? And then could you defend it? Especially you school and ministry students. I've already taught you this. What is the Trinity? Within the one being that is God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the definition of the Trinity. One what? The being of God. Three who's? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, there's one tele-preacher, if you want to call it that, that translates it this way. He's reading it, and his, this lady who's reading the text says, Believest thou not that I am the Father? And he says, do you understand that? Oh, my. There's that Yahwistic terminology, I am. Believest thou not that I am the Father? Did you catch it? Did you catch the teaching? Jesus says, I'm in the Father and the Father in me. This preacher says, I am the Father. Jesus claims to be the Father. Is Jesus the Father? I can't hear you. He's not the Father, is He? He's the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Two persons. You see, this person, by removing the Word in, now changes the whole meaning of the text and says, Jesus is claiming to be the Father. That's not a Trinitarian. That's deception. That's deception. And that's how they do it. Does his teaching conform to the word of God? The answer is no, it does not. But all you have to do is change the word in. Let's read it the way that he says it. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? That doesn't make much sense. But that's what we have to do to check these things out. They may have fruit. They may go into the jails. They may do all this stuff for society and mankind. But in the end, this teacher is a false teacher. And I won't give you his name. Now, we understand that works, the things that we do as Christians are the result of conversion, right? We get saved and then we produce good works, right? It's not that we do good works to be saved. We get saved and then we do good works. 
And so a man might do all these things and yet still be a non-Christian. Look at verse 16, the second part. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What's the answer to that? No. So Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You notice what Jesus is saying here? It's, it's either or. It's not, well, a good tree kind of bears good fruit and a bad tree kind of bears good fruit. No, they either bear good fruit or they don't. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So you can't get thorns from an apple tree, right? And you can't get roses from, or you can't get a rose bush out of a bare apple. Now, it's interesting the word cannot here. It's dunamahi in the Greek, but it's got something that qualifies it before. It's u dunamahi, which gives it an absolute negative. Dunamahi means to be able to have power, to do something, to be capable of, to be strong and powerful. It gives you that idea, right? Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, right? Romans 1.16, same type of root. It's an absolute negative. A bad tree cannot, absolutely not, bear good fruit. It's good to know that. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The word thrown there means to be thrust down, to be thrown away, to be put out. Verse 20, therefore by their fruits you will know them. The next section is very, very hard to deal with because I can remember the first time that I ever read it. It really scared me because it speaks of people who say, Lord, Lord, how will you not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many miracles in your name? And Jesus says to them, Be gone from me, you worker of iniquity. I've never known you. That means that there can be a superficial type of fruit, but I think Jesus here is dealing with self-deception. Do you realize how much of a sinner you really are? Do you understand the utter sinfulness of sin? I think because we're saved by grace, we kind of put some of those things aside, but we need to understand that we can even deceive ourselves. And so I'm going to give you a test this evening that you can apply to yourself to make sure that you understand that you're in the faith. The first is in verse 21 through 23. It involves those who say or profess to be Christians and yet they do not do. John MacArthur says, The Lord is not speaking of irreligious people, to atheists or agnostics, nor is he speaking to pagans, heretics, or apostates. He is speaking specifically to people who are devotedly religious, but who are deluded into thinking that they are on the road to heaven when they're really on the broad road to hell. They have activity, but they have no intimacy. They have religion, but they have no relationship with their Lord and Savior. They come to church. They are in the children's ministry. They're in the greeter ministry. They're in all the other different types of ministries, but they have no true relationship with the Lord. And I'm sure you've heard the stories that Skip has often told about pastors that came to this church, heard messages that came up. I've been a pastor for 15 years, pastoring a church, and I've just given my life to Christ. Now, we might ask the question, how does that work? And so in verse 21, we see false professors and self-deceivers. Not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice the contrast. Those who say and those who do. Now the word Lord, kurios, in a single form would just mean like you, you revere somebody, a, a soldier or a king or whatever it might be. But when someone says Lord, Lord, this is speaking of intimacy, that they've got this personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the divine title and it comes with passion and intimacy. Now saying Lord, Lord is important because we see that some will say Lord, Lord and they'll be right. But not everybody who says it will be. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I'm a Christian. And you put your Christian mask on when you come to Calvary. When you get in the car and you fight with those in the traffic and you get home and you beat your wife or beat your kids or turn on the porno or whatever it might be, the mask comes off and who you really are is that person. You can be self-deluded into thinking, well, I come to Calvary. Have you ever given your life to Jesus? Have you ever made a commitment to Christ? Has your life ever changed from the time that you said, Lord, I want you to come into my life. I want you to change me. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. You guys know that, right? I'm not talking about perfection. James says, faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead as well, Paul says. Verse 22 Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? These are doers. These are now people who are doing. Didn't he just say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven? These are those who have done, but they've done it for the wrong reason. These are the ones that sing songs during worship, raise their hands, serve in the church, and yet they're not saved. And if some doers will not be saved, brothers and sisters, what about those who do not do? What about those who do not do? Who come to this church and just say, well, everyone's getting it done. In that day. Speaking of Judgment Day. And so how do they perform these miracles? That's the question, really. How do they perform these miracles? Well, I think there's two answers to that. One is that they do it by the power of God. Do you remember Balaam? Balaam the prophet? Was he a good prophet? No, he wasn't, was he? But God used him. Right? He came to the Lord, hey, can I curse your people? Duh. God, oh, sure. Yeah, whatever. No, don't curse my people. But what did he tell Balak? Send your women down into the camp. Have them mingle with the Israelites and, and you'll, you'll destroy them. And that's exactly what happened. How about Judas? Let's think about this for a minute. Judas wasn't known to the other 11, right? When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, what did they all say? Lord, is it I? Judas had a, a pretty good snow job going, didn't he? Now, when Jesus sent out them two by two to perform miracles and raise the dead and all the things that they did, do you think Judas did those things? Well, although it's not recorded in the Bible, I'll go out on a limb and say, I, I think he did. Otherwise, I think they would have been able to pick him out among the crowd. The seven sons of Seba were casting out demons, right? By the power of God. It also could be, though, the power of Satan. 
Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Miracles are not the evidence that God is with somebody. It's big today. If a statue bleeds, the the multitudes come... If Jesus is in a tortilla, the multitudes come. If Mary's on a window of the Ugly Duck Car Company, they buy it for $3 million in worship. That's really how gullible I think we all are. They prophesy. And again, I think that's talking about pastoral preaching. And Bible teaching, the Didache again says, but not everyone who speaks in a spirit is a prophet except that he have the behavior of the Lord. The behavior of the Lord. So let me ask a question. Is it possible then for a pastor who is a great teacher, has a strong pulpit present, and a master's of divinity from one of the greatest seminaries in the world still be unsaved? What's the answer, brothers and sisters? Yes. How relevant is this message then? As an example, in Acts chapter 18, you don't have to turn there, but there was a, man, a Jew named Apollos. And it says that he was born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus, and this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, he gets saved by Aquila and Priscilla. And he goes on to do great things. But even in Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about those who preach for selfish gain, right? He says, you know, the gospel is being preached, so we can praise God for that. But they're in it for the wrong reason. Today, just flip on the television, brothers and sisters, and you'll see miracle workers. You'll see healers, exorcists who claim to work for Jesus Christ, but are really satanic deceivers. I've seen people say, hey, send me a thousand bucks, I'll pray that you receive the Holy Ghost. Sounds like Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Give me this Holy Spirit. Can I buy that from you? Verse 23. And then we'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, if you're taking notes, underline that word practice. Because this is the litmus test. This is the meat of the sermon. This is where we find out, okay... You've scared me. I don't know whether I'm saved or not. How do I know? Some of you are already writing letters to Pastor Pete. (laughs) Pete and I go way back. Watch it. I remember pouring concrete in this place and painting this place with Pete Nelson. We've got a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in this building. All right. I never knew you. Gnosko in the Greek. It means a personal or an intimate relationship. Jesus didn't have a personal or intimate relationship with these people. But the key word is practice. Ergadzomahi. Say that fast three times. You're trying to do it. That's awesome. It means to toil, to be engaged in, in or with, to labor for. 
See, that's the key word. Practice here means a continual, habitual lawlessness. It means continually in your life. There is no change. You continually walk in darkness. As it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk, notice that, again, perpetual motion, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You get the distinction? Now, this verse was preached to me in a nightclub here in Albuquerque. And this was the verses, verses 5 through 7, that convicted my heart, that brought me to Jesus Christ. Because I claimed to have a form of godliness. I claimed that my religion, I knew that I would just go to this place called purgatory, and I'd work really hard. I mean, I, I worked construction in Phoenix, Arizona. It couldn't be any hotter than that, could it? But I actually believed that. And then this passage was read to me. And I could not get rid of it. I couldn't get rid of it. The, the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, Paul, you're not right with God. You're not right with God. You're not right with God. Until finally I said, okay, what do I need to do? And a long, blonde-haired kid shows up at Calvary Albuquerque eating Doritos, nacho cheese, and drinking a Sprite and bumping into a guy named Gino Geraci. And the rest is history. 1984. 1 John chapter 3. Turn there. Let's turn there. We're almost done. Some of you are saying, Hallelujah. First John chapter 3, verse 4. Now, when you read this in the Greek, it's awesome. I'll give you a little, some hints here. Look at what it says in verse 4. Whoever commits sin. Again, the idea is continuing. Also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. In him there is no sin. That's Jesus. Whoever abides in him does not sin. See, now you might get the impression, oh, well, well wait a second. You know, I, I kind of blew it in the parking lot coming to church today. Does that mean I'm not saved? No. Again, the idea is continuing in sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, there's that word again, practices righteousness, is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Does that qualify it for you? Can I get an amen if it does? If you've come to church tonight and your life is a life of habitual sin, you need to get saved. If you've come tonight and you have not tested those televangelists and you've not tested Pastor Pete and Pastor Paul and Pastor Skip and everybody else, brothers and sisters, may I plead with you that you do so? It's a matter of spiritual eternity. 
Can you imagine living a life in a church, dying and finding yourself on the wrong line when it comes to judgment? We're all Christians are going to go before the bema seat of Christ, right? We'll be judged for what we did for Christ, and we'll get crowns, and then we'll bring them and blame at Christ's feet because he gets all the glory. But then in Revelation chapter 20, there's a great white throne judgment. And there'll be people on that line saying, hey, man, I'm on the wrong line here. Um, must be a mix-up or something. I don't know what's going on, but uh, the angels must have got it wrong. I don't know what's happening, but how tragic will that day be? For some. Now, why would Jesus preach this sermon? Why would he end the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, with these warnings? As I said earlier, because he loves you and he loves me. He doesn't want us to be self deluded, he doesn't want us to be pretenders. We found out that false prophets and false teachers exist to test us. Are we passing the test? Are we passing the test? Luke 6.46, Jesus says, So why do you call me Lord when you won't obey me? My heart's desire is for you to be discerning. My heart's desire, if you're mad at me and you're just, you've, you've turned me off since the first opening line, get the tape, listen to it online, and check it to Scripture, first and foremost. Second of all, do you see how important it is to discern? There's so many of you. And as pastors, we love every single one of you. We want to serve every single one of you. Because we love you. We love the sheep because we are under shepherds to the greatest shepherd that ever lived, Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't want you to be deceived, well, neither do we. I tell you, as a man who's a pastor who's experienced people's lives decimated by this stuff, I'm not talking about just little things. I'm talking about people losing their family, getting caught up in the wrong stuff, losing their family, losing their sanity, not knowing who God is or if they could ever trust Him again because of the things that they've been through. And my desire this evening is that if you're headed in that direction, you'll stop right where you are. And in that direction, you'll stop right where you are.